This episode is brought to you by the MetaSearch Institute. What happens when patients' cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30-minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, MetaSearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective, the Bainesian method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what MetaSearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. If you're a physician, the word PBM means little to nothing to you, but in 30 minutes, you're going to know a whole lot more about them from an expert. That's a pharmacy benefit manager, and it's a key part of the healthcare ecosystem that represents about a third of the spend in healthcare today. So when I talk about bigs in healthcare, as I do a lot, I'm talking about big insurers, big pharma, big hospitals, big devices, and big middles, which include brokers, retailers, and PBMs. So big PBMs are the biggest of the bigs because they have morphed three giant categories together in the last five to 10 years. They are the Buca insurers, the Blue Cross United Cigna insurer, the pharmacy, there's two big ones we all know of, and the middleman, the claims processor, which is what PBM started as. So PBMs initially existed to process our claim and negotiate between big pharma and the pharmacy, which is now one, that is the PBM, and the insurance company, which is now the PBM. So wait a minute, these guys are canoodling with their bosses yet somehow getting us a good deal. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. If you negotiate a good deal with your boss and buying her car, that's unlikely. You're not gonna get the best deal. There's a different pressure, there's a different system, there's a different competition in place. It's the same problem here, it seems, but we're gonna, as I said, unpack that today. And it seems like a bald conflict of interest, but we're gonna unpack that today too. But wait, it might get even darker. The big three PBMs that dominate this field control 76% of drug pricing. But wait a minute, there's three big automakers. Isn't 76% okay? Isn't that efficient? No, because these big three price all drugs, not just their brand. So when a Ford truck is competing with a Chrysler truck with a Chevy truck, that's true competition. But PBMs eliminate competition 
when they dominate 76% of the market and sell all the drugs. And pharma, as I said, represents a third of the healthcare spend. So this is a big, important ecosystem that's worth $940 billion of a $3.5 billion healthcare spend. It's a big topic. The hospital spend is a little bit larger than that. So between pharma and hospitals, that's about two thirds of our spend in America. So this is important. And my listeners now know that we spend double the healthcare spend of our next competitor on a per capita basis, which is Switzerland. Yet, if we're number one in that category of spending, but we're not number one in outcomes, instead we're right placed between Croatia and Cuba. Now, just as an example, Cuba's economy, their GDP is about the same, well, it's about a third less than my hometown of San Antonio, Texas. So we have first world costs and third world outcomes in America right now. So I'm on a bunny trail. Let's get back to the big three and the 76%. Then we lay them out for you. We've all heard of CVS and Aetna, and that's also Caremark. That's 30%. So they're the 800-pound gorilla right now in the PBM space. Cigna, we've all heard of that, but you've probably never heard of Express Scripts, same company. That's 23% of the market. Optum, you've maybe never heard of, but we've all heard of United Health, and that's 23% of the market. And just to give you a size comparison, Optum is bigger than Microsoft in market cap right now. So Anthem, the fourth of the big bukas, we'll call them, uh, has started their own PBM, and Humana announced they were buying one back in November. So all of the five insurance companies now are PBMs, or we can say the PBMs are insurance companies. And it's important because size matters in this space, and it's a deeply personal issue to you and me. Here's why. My mom's boyfriend, Elliot, who's 86 years old, took 19 pills a day, pretty typical for the elderly to take 15 to 20 pills a day. And that includes his nutraceuticals, that includes his pharmaceuticals. So your parents are likely on meds, your kids might be on meds too, and you might too be on meds. It's a part of our day-to-day life. 90% of the meds that are dispensed are generic drugs, and that was supposed to be the way we were gonna get our costs down is using generics to replace the brands. But 60 to 80% of the cost in America are the branded drugs. So I'm gonna repeat that stat because it's kind of important to our discussion today. 90% dispensed are generics, yet 60 to 80% of the cost is the branded drugs. That means a very small amount, 10% of the drugs that we buy are representing over half the cost. So that's interesting. Um, And just under half of us are on meds and half of those people are spending on two meds or more. So I just wanna throw all this data out there because we're gonna talk about a lot of this today. And there was a famous study saying, how are we adhering to our meds? And I think that's one of the problems that today's guest solves is adherence is gonna go way up if we use the solution. But what adherence looks like on large studies that are famous are 50% adherence. The actual numbers are one in six are adhering to their drugs and maybe even as low as 6% are adhering to the prescriptions their doctors are giving them. So if we can solve that conundrum, we can make a big push forward in moving healthcare to where it needs to go potentially. That again is what our guest is going to be focusing on and one of the many subjects he's focusing on. So reducing costs and eliminating efficiency, those are all important to do. But um, I believe we have a lot of power and very few hands in the PBM market. And these companies that are getting bigger and stronger are supposed to show measurable consumer benefits and outcomes and cost. And I don't think we're getting that right now. So Scriptco is a company that handles all the e-scripting in America. And they are owned by the big PBMs. They're owned jointly by all of them. So guess who they won't allow in their e-script club? Amazon. They don't get to play ball. 
does that smell like what's best for us? And there's 31 independent pharmacists that are closing weekly because the large PMs tend to eliminate the competition. So remember, the big PMs are the pharmacy, are the insurance companies, and sometimes they'll exclude these independents from pharmacy preferred networks, preferred pharmacy networks. Sometimes they'll charge a different price for the drug so that it's not affordable to, for the pharmacy to make a living on selling that drug. So it's a money loser, or they might get chargeback fees. And uh, they might not have access to what's known as 340B drug pricing, which we've talked on another show about. So the problem is massive and clearly ripe for a better way. Today's guest is that possibility. Everybody knows John Scully, the former CEO of Apple and president of Pepsi. And he's now chairman and CMO of RX Advance, which is a healthcare industry's first cloud platform-based PBM owned by Walgreens and Centene, among others. So let's talk about this, John. Have I said anything in my intro that you would disagree with or that you do strongly agree with? No, no, I think you've given a great context for the discussion we're going to have. And I think what RX Advance is hoping to do is to have 42 to 44 million customers. I guess that will be Walgreens and Centene customers that will be onboarded between the next two years. That's a, quite an ambitious number. Uh, well, I think that's uh, a little aggressive. Uh, we, we think by... Uh, 2025, we, we can be uh, around 48 you know, million lives, uh, which would be about uh, uh, $50 billion of revenue with RX Advance through our PBM business. Uh, but let me give you just a kind of uh, an additional insight is how I think about the industry. The uh, pharma industry is the largest spender of lobbying expense of any industry in the United States. $240 million a year. Uh, the second largest is the healthcare industry, $154 million a year of lobbying expense. So when you look at the uh, US healthcare industry, which is around $3.6 trillion, uh, the majority of that is uh, chronic care. Uh, it's over $3 billion, uh, $3 trillion a year just on chronic care. And we are really a sick care industry. Uh, as you pointed out, about a third of the expense comes from the uh, pharma ecosystem. And that pharma ecosystem is uh, radically different from the world I come from. I come from the high-tech industry where all of the big success stories in high-tech have been a result of uh, advancing innovation, which continues to drive down the cost of technology, which makes possible uh, with the advancements of technology, uh, incredibly new innovations. And we've seen it you know, from Apple with things like the iPhone, and we've seen it from you know, other companies with uh, various innovations. So the high-tech industry is an industry that has been characterized by uh, innovation and reducing costs. The pharmaceutical industry is an industry that is known for increasing its prices typically 10% every year regardless of whether there's an improvement in products uh, or a change in the costs, uh, or uh, now the pharmaceutical industries really doesn't do much uh, drug discovery. It uh, goes out and then buys successful companies that do drug discovery after they've discovered it because the cost of drug discovery is high risk. Um, you know, over 90% of the efforts fail and it can take maybe eight or 10 years to get a success. So the pharmaceutical industry 
has huge amounts of lobbying expense uh, to protect its pricing. Uh, the government uh, is lobbied not to use its purchasing power, uh, except in the VA and uh, Veterans Administration. That's the only place where purchasing power uh, is, is leveraged for pharmaceutical drugs. And the same drugs that we buy over here in the US uh, are sold uh, at often less than half or even uh, more discounted in other countries like Canada uh, and the EU. So this is an industry that has uh, built its incredible market value and success through uh, special interests and the ability to increase prices, which is completely opposite of the way the high-tech industry uh, looks at increasing its value. And why this is significant is that we're now at a point where the big high-tech companies, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, all want to come into the healthcare industry. Uh, and my sense is that there is a avenue for them to come in, which is radically different than the incumbents uh, have traditionally built their businesses. And that is to focus on the reversible chronic care diseases. And the reversible chronic care diseases are like type two diabetes or obesity, uh, diseases which uh, can be changed by lifestyle change. And of course, uh, the types of innovations that the high-tech industry can do with you know, heart monitors using sensors and, and uh, other types of technology uh, are now gonna start to play a role in, in, in the lifestyle change of consumers who also happen to be patients and many of whom are chronic care patients. So you've got these uh, you know, two different worlds. One is the traditional world of the pharma industry and all of the ecosystem players around it uh, who have not had to change uh, technology uh, very recently. Just to give you a, a sense of where the PBMs are, all those leading PBMs that you uh, mentioned, Ron, uh, the technology that is the base technology of what they use today was created 35 years ago, you know, back in the mainframe era uh, using IBM AS400s, uh, COBOL, green screens, uh, and now we're in the cloud era uh, and every other industry uh, that is large like financial services, uh, retail, e-commerce, uh, entertainment uh, has uh, moved to cloud uh, based technologies because they're lower cost and more efficient and more accurate. Uh, and yet the healthcare industry has been a laggard. Uh, why? Because there's no incentive for them to lower the cost when they can focus on increasing the price and use their leverage in the market. There's in fact a law that was put on the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare, better known as, that says you cannot negotiate with pharmaceuticals on their pricing if you're CMS, which is just amazing. It's actually written into law. Yeah, and, and, and so everyone beats up, uh, you know, Obamacare and, and says, well, it hasn't been successful. Well, the politicians have done everything they can to make sure it's not successful because no one wants to rock the boat. You know, everyone kind of likes, you know, the way the, the industry has been for decades. And it's, and it's it's the primary reason why it costs twice as much per capita for uh, health uh, care in the United States, uh, even with all of our... Uh, talent that we have in, in the medical and the related scientific communities uh, were twice as expensive as um, 
countries like Switzerland or the uh, others in the EU or Canada, various places like that. So Marty McCary was on our show a month ago, and he did a study with John Hopkins that said 48% of every federal dollar is going towards health care. That might include interest on the debt. Proportionately, that might include Social Security benefits. It looks like they're going to co-pays and deductibles. That looks like defense. That looks like uh, Medicare, Medicaid, of course, and Social Security. But what we're talking about is an unsustainable model. How is your model advanced going to move the ball forward on reducing costs specifically? Is it how, how does machine learning do that by itself? Is there something more to your formula? Uh, ab- ab- absolutely. You know, mach- machine learning is uh, obviously a, a huge innovation in technology, but it's really uh, a tool that enables something that is more disruptive to be successful. That is automation. Uh, so when you look at, uh, let's take the PBM world, uh, pharmacy benefit management uh, companies, uh, as I said, they're running uh, principally on technology that is decades old, and, and they aren't using uh, cloud platforms as every other large industry outside of healthcare is. And so the result is uh, you have uh, so much work that's being done uh, inefficiently, even using fax machines, using, you know, uh, old-fashioned call centers, uh, using uh, lots of, of, of manual tasks, you know, mistakes, you know, humans make mistakes. And when you can move to cloud platforms, as the financial service industry has, uh, to give a good, good comparison, uh, you can start to bring in uh, smart process automation. And when you look at PBMs, what they're doing, and you mentioned this in your uh, preamble, uh, the principal role is to adjudicate the reimbursements, the transaction of, of claims, uh, and to then be able to adjudicate the reimbursements on those claims between the pharma companies and the uh, pharmacies and, and the insurance companies. And of course, the pharma companies want to get their uh, drugs listed as high on the formularies. The formularies are the priority listing of the prescriptive drugs because they want the physicians to uh, recommend their drugs. And so it's a a process uh, that is highly dependent on manual systems that were developed decades ago. What we do at Rx Advance, uh, because we come from the high-tech world, but I've been in healthcare for 15 years, so um, I've had a chance to work on a number of of, of different companies in the healthcare world, bringing high-tech innovations to the healthcare industry. And what we are uh, doing is using something called robotic process automation. Robotic process automation means that the robots uh, are software robots, which are subroutines, which are using machine learning and AI to be able to uh, accurately uh, let the machines uh, be able to uh, process at a substantial discount in the cost, maybe a third of, of the cost per claim uh, of, of what the traditional systems does. Now, the large healthcare industry is not too happy to see this come in because, uh, as I said, no one wants to rock the boat. So it's it's uh, always a challenge. And the, and the way the um, PBMs are uh, selected for a new um, a bid is they go through uh, a uh, what's called a um, a uh, uh, process 
uh, comparison with our competitors. And so uh, we have to uh, be able to conform to what's called an RFP. Uh, and the RFP uh, says you have to be able to do you know, these certain things at this type of accuracy and you're compared to everybody else. So for example, uh, Amazon uh, asked uh, all of the PBMs, including us at RX Advance, to compete in an RFP for their uh, business. Um, we were selected out of 11 uh, different uh, PBMs that they evaluated through the RFP process because our costs are so dramatically lower, our accuracy is so, so significantly higher because we use this robotic process automation technology. And it's not just cool technology. If it were just cool technology, the high-tech industry would have moved into the healthcare industry a long time ago. You also have to have the deep domain expertise because this is a regulated industry, regulated at the states, state by state. Each state is different. It's regulated at the federal level. Uh, it's got you know, all kinds of rules uh, that have to be followed. Many of the rules uh, have no logical sense. You know, they've been influenced by special interests along, along the way. So you have to have not just the technology uh, know-how, but you've got to also have the deep domain expertise of being able to work in this highly regulated system. So that's what RX Advance has built, uh, a highly regulated platform that can work uh, with incredible accuracy, and it's all being done by uh, robotic process automation. So you brought up pricing. Your system's better. Your pricing's lower. I, here's what I understand about PBMs. It seems to me that I can take your 20 lowest cost drugs, take your Humira, take your stats, statins, take your drugs that are most popularly sold, compare those on some simple website. It could be like a reverse auction <laughs> website that allows every PBM to bid for the business based on the lowest cost without rebates, without spread pricing confusion. There, there's a lot of language. There's, Oh my gosh, there's NADAC, which is the National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, CMS requires, it, which really is sort of a illusory uh, reference. But it, the, the average employer who wants to get the cheapest drugs for their employees that are both generic and both brands because they want maybe want both for their employees, they, why couldn't we just literally have the lowest price drugs and head-to-head -head competition? Why does it have to be all this complication inside the middle of this? Well... Uh, technically, there's no reason at all why we couldn't do that. Uh, I mean, our system is fully capable of that, and we've uh, been a promoter of why do we even need to have rebates? Uh, why can't we have transparency in pricing? But the special interests are so powerful, so ingrained. Uh, the th thing about the pharmaceutical world is that uh, they are completely nonpartisan. By that, I mean they give money to the Republicans, they give money to the Democrats. Everybody is on the payroll. And so you may remember uh, that there were hearings about the PBMs. Why are the PBMs uh, able to uh, be so secretive about what goes on, uh, who gets paid, how much money, and how much of that actually uh, goes to, to the consumer, which is relatively little. And the politicians uh, in the hearings would come out in their first five minutes and they would make these statements that it's outrageous, there ought to be more openness and stuff, but there were never any tough follow-on questions. And after the hearings were finished, whether it was in the House or in the Senate, nothing ever happens. Why? 
because the special interests are just too powerful. Everyone depends upon them for their campaign financing. Yeah, there are the 565 million last year FAC reported. There's another dark money channel that they say is at least that much um, that's not reported. Uh, but the, the, the second closest and third closest and fourth closest spend would be defense, Wall Street, technology, big oil. Together, the four of them don't even spend close to what healthcare spends, not even close. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And so the chance of uh, politicians uh, coming up with, you know, say, um, uh, Medicare for all, it's, it's a joke. Uh, it, it's a, a joke, uh, not just because the politicians have no uh, track record of, of ever inventing a brand new industry, because uh, you really have to bring in you know, major innovation to do something like Medicare for all. So if it's going to happen, anything like that, it's going to have to come from the private sector. But the private sector of the traditional healthcare industry has no motivation to make those kinds of changes. They don't want to bring in things that are lower costs, that, are, that have more tried, uh, price transparency, that cre creates a better uh, value for the consumer because that's not how they make their money. They're a sick care industry and they make their money by increasing prices, by keeping costs high. Uh, and that's not likely to change anytime. Um, even if you get a different administration, a different party in, in power, um, while they may speak about all the things they wanna do, it's very, very hard when you go up against a special interest to make changes. So I, you know, I never expect change out of the state or federal capitals. It's not going to happen by the regulators either because they and lobbyists are high-fiving each other up and down the up and down escalator. Um, let me ask you a question about the health graph. So if we can agree that Amazon owns the home purchase, they own the health, the graph of purchasing. If we agree that Apple owns the uh, technology graph of using your phone, of the using devices, and if we agree that Facebook owns the social graph, um, and maybe Google owns the knowledge graph. What does owning the health graph look like? And, I, and let me define the health graph as being, John Scully went for a run today with his wife. She went on the Peloton yesterday. Um, they checked into the gym last week and they checked into their doctor, you know, by tech. And it's all in one silo and the health graph knows exactly how you're progressing on your health journey and her journey. And it's all in one place. And then you know exactly what you need to do next to make your health optimized. Who's going to own the health graph, in your opinion? Who has the best shot at winning that race? I, I think the winner of that race is going to be the organization that is able to be the biggest player in lifestyle change. Uh, if you look at um, the chronic care diseases, uh, that 60% of the population has at least one chronic care disease. 70% of those chronic care diseases are reversible. And if you can look at the opportunity to bring innovation in terms of, of preventative care, which means preventing people from getting uh, a disease or better wellness through lifestyle change, you know, uh, could be nutrition, diet, could be exercise, it, it could be a combination of you know, uh, many, many things, but getting lifestyle changes is something that I think you're going to see uh, where the high-tech industry uh, can start to, to bring in some um, new ground rules for how we serve people with healthcare. Uh, the high-tech industry is, is clearly not equipped to be able to 
uh, deal in the traditional healthcare system uh, the way it's constructed today. Uh, it doesn't have the deep domain ex experience. Uh, it, it doesn't play to its strengths. But what plays to its strengths is being able to influence people to uh, try, try a, a different alternative. Uh, and if you look at the success stories, uh, the success stories at Apple, at Amazon, at Google, um, these, these companies uh, have had success stories by the way in which they focus on the end user, the consumer, and how they get the consumer to do things differently than they did before those companies existed. And yet, if you look at the healthcare industry, it is not an industry whose first priority is the consumer or the patient. It's an industry whose uh, first priority are the institutions in the industry. So, so the hierarchy of importance uh, in the industry is all around the big providers, the health insurance companies, the you know, other various uh, companies that, that work between the insurance companies and the providers and the pharmacies and, and all of these incumbents, uh, the incumbents who don't want to rock the boat, uh, the incumbents who uh, would prefer to get a price increase uh, than to get you know, a new innovation that's going to significantly lower costs for consumers. And what we have now is we have a, a, a population uh, that, that is trapped in having to not only pay a lot of money for their health insurance, but then you have to add deductibles, you have to add co-pays, and you start to realize that for most Americans, uh, let's take a middle-class income uh, American, they're spending uh, between 28 to um, 34% of their income is going on healthcare. And, and that's just not a sustainable uh, situation when the healthcare costs keep going up year after year after year. Yeah, Commonwealth Fund did a study that about, uh, about 80% of Americans have had their raises taken away from them by healthcare increases. So every time you get an inflation adjusted raise, it's disappearing, going right into deductibles and premiums and copays. So, so, so if you say, what, what can the high-tech industry do? Well, ultimately, um, I think that the opportunities to dramatically not just change the costs of the healthcare industry. McKinsey Global Institute estimates there's $900 billion of fraud, waste, abuse, and misuse, and avoidable costs in the $3.6 trillion spend. $900 billion dollars. Now, just a couple hundred billion dollars of that, uh, if you could reduce the costs, could give all the people who don't have health insurance, health insurance, or it could upgrade the people who are underinsured with better quality health insurance, or it could reduce uh, deductibles or reduce co-pays. But that's not likely to happen because of all the uh, things we've been discussing. So the more interesting thing, I think, is to say, where can innovation come in in terms of the lifestyle changes um, for preventative care, the lifestyle changes for better wellness, uh, the lifestyle changes that can uh, focus on the reversible chronic care diseases like diabetes, you know, type two diabetes, um, obesity, things of that sort, um, because that's where you know, innovations uh, from the high-tech industry, uh, I think will start to make an impact. And, and it may not happen you know, this year or next year, 
uh, maybe it'll take the rest of this decade. Um, but I think it's inevitable that at some point, uh, these innovations will break through because they've, they've broken through into every other industry. Healthcare is, is the last holdout uh, of the innovation. Yeah, actually, it happened the last three years, John. We've had uh, two companies, one will be on our show next week, and the other one will hopefully will be on the show in the next few weeks. Verta Health has done clinical trials. They've reversed diabetes. 70 to 80% of the uh, people on the peer in the, in the panel are actually reversing A1C. Um, there's a company in Austin called Wellsmith. It's not as well known, and um, they're owned by Cone Health out of North Carolina, uh, $3 billion company. Wellsmith has reversed on 30% of their uh, three different clinical trials, diabetes on 30% of their patients. So uh, everyone pointing A1C say that's 8,000 back into the healthcare system that's not spent. So it's a beautiful thing. Are you aware on your 15-year um, horizon in healthcare, is any other companies that are actually turning the dial on these uh, basically lifestyle diseases, we'll call them? Yeah, well, well, I'll give you an example of one that I'm involved with right now. It's actually a, a company based in London um, and they have a, a breakthrough invention for non-invasive blood glucose monitoring. Uh, but uh, this is very di different from what, let's say, uh, Dexcom is doing. Dexcom has, has a patch called the G6, and it's a very successful, outrageously successful company. Um, but it's really for, uh, targeted at type 1 diabetics who uh, need to be able to uh, have a system that gives them insulin when, when they need insulin. But the type two diabetics uh, you know, can't afford uh, $1,300 a year for what a, what a G6 uh, costs. And so if you can get non-invasive uh, blood glucose monitoring, meaning no finger prick uh, at all, uh, and be able to uh, take that uh, data and then automatically you know, uh, uh, transfer uh, that data you know, back into online uh, systems that are that are coaching people. Uh, as you know, there are companies like Lavongo, Omada, and others who have been very successful companies commercially um, were both diabetes and hypertension. Well, I can tell you in the era, area of uh, um, sensor, uh, medical quality sensors, I'm talking about things way beyond uh, the sensors that you would see in, in, in a wearable watch today for uh, EKG. I'm talking about sensors that uh, we're working on now with, with uh, machine learning and AI, where not only can we uh, take blood glucose monitoring, but we can take uh, other blood constituents like electrolytes, potassium and sodium. Uh, we can look, look at hemoglobin, uh, A1C, and be able to, to monitor that non-invasively uh, through sensors that could be um, built into a watch or built into a smartphone. And, and, and that's just you know, a piece of, of the puzzle. We're also, uh, we have now in trials uh, sensors where we're able to uh, look through a lady's breast with a harmless electrical field, be able to do early detection of a breast uh, cancer tumor uh, long before it could be discovered with a, a mammogram. And if you get it early enough, nobody would have to die. What, is the, what are the names of the company in London with the glucose monitor and the uh, treatment for breast cancer potential? Yes, the name of the company is called Zedson, Z-E-D-S-E-N. And uh, it's uh, an incredibly interesting technology. It's also being, being used uh, at Heathrow Airport to, to, to replace the highly unreliable uh, you know, tests when people go through uh, a passenger screening you know, before you get on, on, on the aircraft. 
and those are only accurate maybe 30% of the time. Uh, so this is accurate over 90% of the time and it can look for explosives in people's shoes and things like that. Um, it, they're, they're also uh, in, in, in tests with uh, uh, people who might have a melanoma uh, that is below the epidermis and they can do uh, a early detection of a melanoma but below the skin um, without a biopsy. Those products are not on the market today. You know, they, they are you know, in the process of being commercialized and, and uh, it'll probably be a, you know, either have a partnership or be acquired by uh, one of the large global companies which have the ability to you know, get the kind of distribution that you would want for those types of technologies. But that's just one example. All right, so nobody's going to own the health graph until they get to reversing these diseases, and you're not betting on anybody right now, but it, it being like in the next 10 years. I, I think in terms of lifestyle changes, we'll, we will definitely see uh, innovations that will have significant impact you know, over the next several years. You know, I'm talking about you know, three to uh, four years. But there are other things we can do. For, for instance, we have a company, we originally, uh, it, it's called... Uh, on-demand pharma, you can you know, go to Google and see it, where we acquired technology from MIT about seven years ago. And uh, the whole focus of our company is to be able to have a US sourced um, generic drugs. All of the generic drugs that you mentioned that, that are 90% of the, the drugs that are sold, uh, they aren't made in the United States. They're made in China, they're made in, in uh, India, um, they may be made in Israel, you know, places like that, but they aren't made in the U.S. And so the president has said, hey, we've got to have, for the security of America, we need to have uh, U.S. sourced, uh, what are called active pharmaceutical ingredients. Well, uh, this company that, that we have called On Demand Pharma, uh, still not approved by FDA, we're in the process of that. Uh, we have developed the uh, technology and, and, and the technology to be able to do continuous manufacturing in a, a manufacturing factory that is the size of a small refrigerator. Uh, remember, uh, pharmaceuticals today are done in big batch uh, systems. Uh, this is continuous manufacturing. Uh, we've received money from DOD, Department of Defense, because they'd like to see this uh, type system available in every military base uh, in the world. You know, there's 740 military bases. You're basically 3D printing drugs, right? I mean, you're you're 3D printing with a basically a pharmaceutical printer. Yeah. Well, what you first of all, you have to have the active pharmaceutical ingredients that are sourced in the U.S. And so this, this is pharmacology. This is not uh, data science. And so the pharmacology technology we, we have, um, and we have a terrific team and a, and a great founder CEO. Uh, what they are are uh, up to now, we have about, we're up to about 35 uh, generic drugs that we can make. We'd like to you know, get up to over 75 by the time we uh, start to roll this out commercially. But uh, think about a future in this decade where uh, every hospital could be able to uh, manufacture on-site its own generic uh, drugs. Uh, even pharmacies could, could manufacture on-site their own generic drugs. Yes. What is the name of that company too, John, please? It's called On Demand Pharma. Okay. On Demand Pharma. You can go to Google and you, you, can, you can see it. Sure. Um, well, so we, we want to be careful with your time. You've been very kind in 
Uh, I know you have a hard stop and we wanted to obviously welcome you back on the show anytime because this is a free ranging discussion on a lot of interesting topics, but if you could fly a banner over America with a message for all people that need better healthcare, what would that message say? I, I would say the message is that we have to think about health in the context of a noble cause. You know, it's, it's, it's not just about how do you build a better business uh, is about how do you uh, look at better outcomes for a population that is increasingly uh, aging as people have longer lifespans? Uh, and how do we come up with a way of giving people a chance for a higher quality of life? And from my standpoint, it all goes back to uh, lifestyle changes because while obviously lifestyle change, you know, can't solve every problem in healthcare, but it can have such a huge impact on more people uh, at, at a scale that is beyond you know, any of the other innovations that are going on. For example, I, I'm uh, the, one of the founding vice chairmen of, of a company called Cellularity, where a cell therapy company spin out from Celgene. And uh, in the world of uh, cell therapies for cancer, uh, even when you have a big breakthrough, like uh, CAR-T, the chimeric antigen receptors that are used for uh, CAR-T cells that are doing things like um, looking at glioblastoma, acute myeloid leukemia, multiple myeloma, many of these, these are uh, very serious diseases, uh, that it's only a few thousand people that have ever been successfully treated with, with these uh, breakthrough technologies. And yet, if you look at how you can impact the population with lifestyle changes, you know, using the next generation of medical sensors, using uh, robotic process automation, you know, where machines are more accurate than humans, you know, using uh, you know coaching services that can be done online with uh, robots, you know, which are really avatars. Um, where you don't even have to have a human uh, intervention because it's working off the uh, data analytics that are coming through the, through the machine learning um, of what you know and the feedback from, from the sensor devices. These are the types of, of innovations that don't have to be locked out by the special interests in the healthcare system. These are innovations that can break through during this decade. And they're probably going to come from outsiders. They aren't going to come from inside the healthcare industry. But uh, as they become more and more uh, examples of success, role models of success, uh, it's inevitable that, that uh, then the incumbents in the healthcare industries are going to have to get involved, buy these companies, or partner with them. Um, but uh, first, the innovations have to come. And it's going to come from the private sector. It's going to come from outsiders. Uh, and, the, and it's more likely to come from lifestyle changes because the outsiders just don't have the deep domain expertise that the insiders have today. I think you nailed it 100% agree with every word you're saying. Um, so we, when you talk about noble cause, you told a story here in Houston that was really powerful about the first time you met Bill Gates when Steve Jobs was recruiting you. No interview with you is complete without having a Steve Jobs story. <laughs> so the noble cause is very uh, powerful messaging, very powerful in my heart, I believe I'm in a noble cause right now, working on exactly the problems you're talking about. Can you speak to how you heard the term noble cause for the first time? Sure. Well, 
Uh, I'd been at Apple for about three months. This is back in early 1980, 83. Steve Jobs and I had spent five months getting to know each other. We would get together every weekend uh, or five months before I actually joined Apple. And so now I'm at Apple for about three months. And in the high tech world in Silicon Valley, uh, most of the work happens uh, late at nighttime. So engineers don't usually show up uh, much before noon, but they're there at um, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And so I'm sitting around in the Macintosh engineering lab with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and, and they're talking about um, their noble cause um, of how they're gonna change the world one person at a time. Uh, Bill is gonna do it with software, shrink wrap software. He invented shrink wrap software. Steve is gonna do it by uh, building the Macintosh, which is, wasn't on the market, he was still a, you know, in development, uh, was going to be you know, the first a personal computer for non-technical people he used to call it the bicycle for the mind and i'm sitting there listening to these two geniuses talk about creating a new industry and putting it in the context of a noble cause and i would never heard the words in business noble cause uh, so that stuck with me through the decades and 15 years ago uh, one of my very close friends bob metcalf who invented ethernet uh, which is foundational to the internet uh, said, you know, you know, John, people like you and I uh, need to reinvent ourselves. And so I thought about that. I said, well, if I'm going to reinvent myself, I'm going to do it around a noble cause. And so I picked healthcare. At the time, I didn't know anything about healthcare, but I've become a student of healthcare. I've helped uh, build a number of, of high tech companies um, in the healthcare uh, industry and will continue to do so um, because I think uh, noble cause is the way in which really big world-changing breakthroughs um, happen because they're in a context where you zoom out and you look across the boundaries of an industry as it's been traditionally defined and then you find the connection points and then you zoom in and you say there has to be a better way and so that's what drives me at this point in my life is um, the noble cause of how do you bring innovation pragmatically into an industry that has resisted innovation, uh, where innovation has not been a criteria for success, uh, and an industry that hasn't wanted to rock the boat, and an industry that has relied heavily on special interests. So how do you break through? And I think the only way you break through is you've got to start with a noble cause, and you've got to come in as an outsider. By the way, one of the 20 best books that the smartest guys I know uh, put on their list of must-reads is Moonshot, your book you wrote uh, five years, six years ago. So, and it, that's where I first learned about Noble Causes, reading that book. And uh, many people have read it four or five times to uh, just continue to use it as a Bible. So thank you for that offering. Uh, John, thank you for your time. We uh, really have enjoyed uh, visiting with you and I agree with every word you're saying. It makes complete sense. And uh, you come at this from a consumer perspective, serving up Pepsi, consumer perspective, serving up Apple. And now um, you're still focused on the consumer with lifestyle changes. It's great to see your full circle. Well, thank you, Ron. And thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. Thanks again. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I want to read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment, and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. 
One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.